0: You're listening to a 3CR podcast, created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.
1: And welcome to the Radioactive Show, produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne and heard nationally on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to 3CR's Radioactive Show. This show was produced on lands of Ngāi Iwi, with an interview recorded on Ngānawāo and Namgambri lands for 3CR, which is located on Wandri Woiwurrung lands. I pay my respects to elders past and presence from across these sovereign nations, who hold the true authority on their own country. The radioactive show is distributed across so-called Australia on the Community Radio Network, and brought to you with the financial support of the Nuclear Free Collective at Friends of the Earth Melbourne. My name is AC. In today's show, I'm sharing an interview with Jess Irwin, a PhD student from ANU, who is researching South Australia's nuclear history. Jess's work highlights a nuclear history that started before 1945 and what we think of as the beginning of the nuclear age, and puts this nuclear story in the context of settler colonialism in South Australia. So you've been spending many years studying Australia's nuclear history. I'm just wondering what first got you interested in that?
0: Well, it actually began with a just more interest in the nuclear weapons regime more broadly. I went on exchange to Manchester and they had this fantastic course on insecurity. And they looked at it from all different types of perspectives, feminist perspectives, post-colonial perspectives. And I wrote this really um, interesting essay on the gendered and colonial aspects of the nuclear weapons regime uh, and i just it just kind of felt right and i really enjoyed it so when i came back to australia i was determined to do honors and i went to speak with a historian at the anu about writing a peer, uh, an honors thesis on some kind of aspect of nuclear history and she handed me a book and she said did you know they tested nuclear weapons in south australia Uh, And as I'm sure a lot of listeners to the radio show would know, um, there are a lot of people who don't know that people, there were weapons tests in Australia. I was one of them. And so I was immediately intrigued and that kind of started the ball rolling and I haven't stopped looking at it since. So that was really how I uh, got into Australia's nuclear history.
1: Interesting. And often I think that for many people is the case that we go overseas, we find about nuclear histories overseas, which are spoken of more and then when you come back, you realise there's a nuclear history here that no one speaks about. For sure. What, what What is your PhD on? Could you explain it in 50 words or less or just a quick explanation?
0: <laughs> sure. So my PhD is a history of nuclear colonialism in South Australia throughout the 20th century. So I look at radium and uranium mining, nuclear weapons testing and nuclear waste dumping across that period within the state.
1: Yeah. And do you think? Yeah, do you think there is sort of a lack of understanding of what's happened in Australia
0: when you started to look into it? I definitely think so. I think Australia has a really complicated national history in many ways, and I I think its nuclear history is no different. There have been many times in our past where there have been active attempts to reshape our history, which have led to misunderstandings about our nuclear history, or even just a lack of knowledge of how much we have been involved in global nuclear history, let alone our own nuclear history. I also think beyond that, there tends to be a bit of a preoccupation with the nuclear tests. We kind of see it as this big explosive episode in Australia's nuclear history that a lot of people really struggle to look beyond. But we have uh, the Australian um, nuclear history is incredibly deep. It began as early as 1906 with radium mining in South Australia and runs all the way through to the present and covers so many different processes, not just weapons testing, that I think it's been um, quite easy for people to overlook. Uh, And I think uh, it also has been that we have been incredibly active against a lot of nuclear processes over many, many decades uh, and and are in a region where this is quite a... um, a topic of concern for a lot of people, especially in the Pacific, but we forget to look at things like uranium mining sometimes, or even early radium mining and the ways that these kinds of processes tie into our broader history of settler colonialism and um, national development and things like that. That was Jess Irwin, ANU PhD
1: student, speaking about people's understanding of the history of nuclear activities in South Australia. You're listening to The Radioactive Show on 3CR, 855 on the radio and streaming online at 3cr.org.au. Back to our interview with Jess, who explained some of the early history of mining radioactive minerals in South Australia. Yeah, I don't think I know much about the nuclear history of Australia pre these nuclear tests. Could you explain a bit about some of that early, early history?
0: Sure. Uh, this was perhaps the most interesting and exciting part of my PhD research uh, was when I realised or figured out through kind of cross-referencing documents and reading some secondary history that Douglas Mawson, the Antarctic explorer, was actually involved in the very early years of Australia's uh, nuclear history. Uh, Not only did he go to Antarctica twice but he was incredibly obsessed with finding radium in Australia and it was at a time where radium, the Curies were doing a lot of their research, and it was a, a real chance for someone like Mawson to put his name in the kind of global sphere of these amazing explorers and scientists who were, who were discovering these minerals. So he really dedicated a lot of his time when he was in Australia at the University of Adelaide um, as a geologist going into the Flinders Ranges, and he influenced a lot of his students uh, to do similar things. So the Flinders Ranges has a really rich um, role to play in this. And I found a letter between Douglas Mawson and one of his prospectors in 1910, uh, which makes reference to Douglas Mawson also employing Aboriginal people uh, within the Flinders Ranges to prospect for awe. Uh, And so it has very deep connections to what would later come with the nuclear testing. Um, Mawson then becomes involved in trying to help identify uranium and radium deposits before the war um, in order to kind of deliver a, a big load of uranium to the Commonwealth. Uh, so it has much deeper beginnings than uh, than the nuclear testing, but these are aspects of the history that have not been heavily explored by historians, but geologists, especially in in Adelaide, are quite well aware of.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, Yeah, and I guess they were relying, I guess, a lot on Aboriginal knowledge, because people did know where the uranium was and had words and understandings about what was going on with radioactive substances in the country. Have you found a lot of sort of information about that over
0: the... I think largely in relation to those families um, f- such as um, Gogatha families and um, families in communities that have dealt with uranium mining, they talk a lot about uh, them knowing that these were not substances to be dug up, they were to be left. Uh, and that a lot of the uh, physical consequences of, of dealing with radioactivity are consequences of disturbing uh, this mummy, this poison that really should have been left in the ground. Um, and so obviously we had uh, the Iradiwanti campaign and that was their real key message was the poison leave it, the idea of leaving uranium in the ground uh, and having uh, a deep cultural understanding of uranium being a poisonous substance. And while this is outside... Um, my research, you obviously saw the Mira people incredibly upset that the uranium from Ranger ended up in the, uh, the TEPCO nuclear disaster uh, in Japan. And this idea that it has very kind of deep connections to, to the earth uh, and, you know, the uranium coming from earth that was known to be left alone Uh, rather than dug up and and used in in nuclear processes, such as mining or nuclear energy or or nuclear weapons as well.
1: Yeah, do you think, is it, um, how do you approach sort of working with Aboriginal stories and with people who hold those stories as a non-Indigenous person? Is there kind of protocols around that or have you found ways to do that, you know, in a
0: culturally safe way? That's a really, really good question, uh, because I think as an academic researcher, one of the really difficult things is is what the university wants is often not sometimes the best ways to approach uh, working with communities. Uh, So I did have to go through quite an extensive ethics process for my research. Um, And then it's really been working with families and allowing them to guide the conversation rather than come into a conversation with questions that I want answered come into conversations with a general sense of what I'm interested in, essentially the nuclear history of Australia. And then I am happy to hear whatever it is that families or communities think is important to tell me. Um, I had a really fantastic trip recently to Port Augusta to talk with a family. And we spent many, many hours speaking off the record, uh, just about country, about the kinds of lessons that uh, families learned from, um, from, their ancestors to then kind of sit down and maybe just put a few things on the record and even that just helps even if it doesn't end up quoted in the thesis because it's not necessarily on the record it helps to enrich the broader approach of understanding the nuclear in uh, far broader and um more interesting terms, I think, than just thinking about it in the way that it's represented in documents you find in the archives or through talking to scientists or through talking to uh, people who speak in quite technical ways or or have quite technical understandings of the nuclear versus far more environmentally centered and and, uh, culturally sensitive ways of thinking through the nuclear uh, as something that impacts on people beyond its radioactivity, I think, is important as well.
1: Yeah, so what are some of those impacts outside of the radioactivity? I guess we kind of focus a lot on that, but there is a
0: broader sort of context of what happens when the nuclear industry comes into a community. For sure, and I think one of the ways that, for example, the British nuclear test has been considered colonial in the past is is very much this sense that... um, The British came in and the Australians allowed them to test on land that was occupied by Aboriginal people, therefore it was colonial. But it goes far deeper than that in that there were lots of colonial mechanisms that were already impacting very deeply on Aboriginal communities in these areas at the time and that were therefore used by the British and the Australians to control movement. Things like encouraging missions to intervene in communities, encouraging or discouraging the use of of um, traditional mobility or going out onto country using water holes these things were discouraged Um, as people who have read into the British nuclear test would know even the dismantling of sacred sites in order to try and reduce um, connection to country but as Heather Goodall who is a historian who worked on the Royal Commission also found the introduction of measles and other kinds of diseases by virtue of so many more scientists and, and, and settlers coming into the area for the tests impacted um, them, but beyond the tests, even with things like uranium mining uh, there are mechanisms that are put in place to kind of undermine Aboriginal people's um, connection to that, to that land and legal framework. So with it, with um Olympic Dam, I found documents from the David Tonkin South Australian government that very much decided that what the government was going to do was allow communities to identify sacred sites in many situations in order to kind of give a little bit but not a lot and avoid land rights claims. So by protecting certain sacred sites, they would. the government was hoping they would avoid land rights claims to the whole area. So there are far more kind of intricate colonial mechanisms going on beyond just the idea that radioactivity, of course, affects environments and peoples for tens to hundreds of thousands of years. There are also um, lots of issues surrounding displacement and dispossession of land that cannot then um, be gone back to, uh, especially just through by virtue of, of destroying that land, but also those mechanisms that undermine the, um, calls for land rights or protections of sacred sites. Um, and we even see that with broader mining enterprises, such as with the destruction of Yonkong Gorge in, in WA in the last couple of years. So, yeah, I think it's important to think about it beyond radioactivity, because often focusing on radioactivity means it is that is also very hard to quantify radioactivity. Um, so we need to think about the impacts as, as far broader and perhaps in... Um, less specific terms than irradiation as well.
1: That was Jess Irwin, ANU PhD student, reminding us that radiation is not the only impact of nuclear activities, though we tend to focus on it a lot. You're listening to The Radioactive Show. In our interview, I asked Jess about the 1984-85 Royal Commission into Nuclear Testing in South Australia. How how important was that Royal Commission in terms of Australia's
0: nuclear history that's a very good question the royal commission is a is a really interesting one and it's a very important one for the history of the nuclear in some obvious ways but also in some less obvious ways and what is quite interesting about that royal commission is like a lot of royal commissions it was a very political kind of piece of theater really in that it was a really strong attempt for the Hawke labor government to really divorce themselves from the mother country it was this idea of it was menzies and the british um so um the british on there what they referred to as anglophilic allies who very much allowed this nuclear testing to go on which is very different to what Hawke wanted to project for himself which was uh someone who was who was who was disconnected from a lot of this and some historians have argued that's why Diamond, Jim McClelland, was the commissioner because he was quite a, a flamboyant and theatrical person who, who went to London uh, and, as, as one person described it, tipped buckets on the British. He really did a lot to, to, to make a bit of a spectacle out of it. So in that way, it really put the issue on the map. But in many ways, it also started to kind of recalibrate that national narrative about who should be blamed for the nuclear testing, um, and some historians have shown that the Labor government's pre-Menzies were also involved in setting up a nuclear posture for Australia. They were very keen to develop nuclear weapons for Australia, so um, it often means that that goes overlooked. But on the other side, there were incredibly powerful Aboriginal testimonies during that Royal Commission, which really brought home the the real impacts of the nuclear testing on people there was a lot of discussion of fear of going back on land that they didn't know whether it would be contaminated or not lots of questions about whether the uh, land would be decontaminated which would eventually turn towards targeted studies to make sure that the land was safe uh, to re inhabit uh, but also calls for compensation so it was a bit of a landmark in that it really put Maralinga, especially, or all the word Maralinga, kind of encompassing all the nuclear tests on the map, and people really thinking through uh, the the involvement of Australia in in Britain's nuclear testing, and it also created a lot of stories that to this day a lot of Australians can recall, such as Yami Lester and the black mist and um, that rolled through Walatina and and made a lot of people really really sick. And it made people question as well whether we really know enough about radioactivity uh, to be doing these kinds of tests and, and, and mining and those kinds of things.
1: Yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting to think about that time as being, there's also the Roxby Down sort of um, protests during that time earlier in the 70s that the Australian government was protesting French testing in the Pacific and stuff. I'm wondering, do you know how it's sort of like what the shift was, which meant that the Australian government felt it was acceptable to start mining at Roxby and expanding the uranium mining industry?
0: I have looked into it a little bit, um, and it is something that was incredibly controversial, uh, as many would know, especially anyone who's listening who was involved in in those protests in in the 70s. Hawke, when he as Australian Labor leader and also leader of the ACTU, the unions, he supported uranium mining in 1977, which went against Labor's moratorium on uranium mining. And I've read some fabulous letters to Hawke in the archives where members of the public just absolutely tear him apart for this decision. Um, One letter from a woman called Beverly basically says to Hawke, I held you in every respect until I heard that you supported uranium mining um, and now I think that I hold you in the same kind of stead as someone like Ernest Tittenden, who was incredibly pro-nuclear and was an incredibly controversial and quite nasty figure. I think um, there was a sense in this period that uranium could still be a mineral that could make Australia a lot of money and in South Australia in particular which when you uh, when Olympic Dam was the deposit was identified and when it started being mined was under um, liberal leadership there was a sense that it was settler Australia's right to develop these minerals and potentially gain wealth uh, South Australia was a state that hadn't had kind of a big mining boom like other states, such as even the gold rushes. They hadn't had the equivalent. And there was still a sense that uranium could make Australia a lot of money. And that and it also came at a period where the post-war boom had ended. We had stagflation. There were a lot of economic issues in Australia. And uranium was kind of seen to be potentially an answer to a lot of this. Uh, for a lot of proponents of uranium mining so that's under my understanding why these kinds of narratives started coming out that maybe uranium mining is something we should try we have this huge deposit at olympic dam we should definitely mine it um and then because the labor governments were kind of re-elected in the early 80s after olympic dam had already been established as had ranger the arrangement was that they that labor would have their three mines policy which was that they would allow the three big uranium mines to go ahead but no more would be established Uh, but that has worked out relatively well for the uranium industry in australia because those are very very big deposits and the fact that they're allowed they were going to sustain that aspect of the mining industry for a for a long time
1: That was Jess Irwin, ANU PhD student who is studying South Australia's nuclear history. You're listening to The Radioactive Show, produced for 3CR and distributed across so-called Australia on the Community Radio Network. In our interview, I asked Jess about the importance of First Nations people speaking out at the Royal Commission in the 1980s and more recently at the Citizens' Jury into hosting international nuclear waste conducted by the South Australian state government in 2016.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's been consistent. You have Kevin Buzzacott, who's uh, now in Canberra at the Aboriginal tent embassy, but he has been a strong advocate for trying to stop the expansions of Olympic Dam because of how much water is used by the mine from the Great Artesian Basin and all sorts of issues that people keep bringing to the fore, and even the fact that we've kind of shown time and time again that economically uranium is not actually kind of making the big bucks that it was assumed that it would, uh, those mines were established in a period where uranium prices were really dropping. They weren't um, in as high demand as, say, during the 40s and 50s, where we are starting the beginning of an arms race where everyone wants uranium ore. So there have been lots of families, especially Aboriginal families, who have come out and been incredibly vocal about against the expansions um, of Olympic Dam in particular, And continue to lobby Um, and it's the same with the radioactive waste it's a reoccurring kind of cyclical um process of of protesting against something being able to stop it from happening but then maybe 10 years down the track the process beginning again
1: yeah and do you think those sort of contemporary issues around nuclear waste and things they bring people's awareness up of nuclear testing or previous like nuclear history
0: I think in certain circles, yes. I think the recent waste dump has really uh, revived a lot of people's memories of the Wanti campaign and and the 1998 Howard dump, as well as the fact that a lot of um, the people at the centre of these protests have, they have experienced so many of Australia's nuclear processes you know, Olympic Dam might also be on their land, or they may have also been affected by the nuclear test, that it does help to create links between a lot of these processes, where a lot of people who are proponents of nuclear waste being dumped in certain areas, for example, would want to divorce that from nuclear testing. They wouldn't want those two things to be in conversation, or they wouldn't want uranium mining and, and the waste dump to be in conversation. But There are people whose lived experiences show that these are inherently linked by virtue of consistently being put in the same places or impacting upon the same people or being protested by against by the same people. So I think it does create um, some awareness among certain groups, but there is also still a tendency among proponents of for example you see this AUKUS deal when AUKUS is talked about I don't know a whole lot about AUKUS as soon as it came out I saw every single security studies person that I even follow on Twitter for example coming out and writing a think piece about about that and it seems so disconnected from a lot of Australia's quite intimate nuclear history um, discussing those kind of almost completely removed from one another.
1: Why do you think South Australia has been so targeted by the stuff why is South Australia really bore the brunt of the nuclear industry in Australia?
0: That's a really hard one. I think, with the Flinders Ranges, the very beginning of, of this history, the Flinders Ranges has such rich geological uh, significance. The fact that the University of Adelaide at the time was a real hub for geologists, um, which worked both ways the geology of the particular state fed that department, and the department fed interest in the, in the state. In terms of the nuclear testing, I think part of that has to do with Woomera and the fact that Woomera had been set up for the rocket tests ahead of time. Therefore, there were already some mechanisms in place for South Australia to be a, quote unquote, kind of safe place to test nuclear weapons. They had a lot of um, the infrastructure put in place for Woomera, some of the um, deals with the government even Walter McDougall who was the patrol officer who was in charge of trying to manage the movement of aboriginal communities during the nuclear testing he had previously been the native patrol officer for Woomera uh, so the resources were kind of shared between the two facilities I imagine that um, made South Australia a, a particularly enticing place for the testing the fact that it is kind of the center and it's the it, that desert was considered by a lot of people, not necessarily uninhabited, but not inhabited by communities of of consequence. It wasn't near urban areas that they were worried about white Australians being um, irradiated. There was a sense that the communities there could be dealt with through missions or stations or, or, or rations or moving people. Um, and having said that, the the prohibited areas do go into Western Australia as well. Um, yeah, and in terms of the nuclear waste dumps, very much a sense that I think because there'd already been nuclear testing in South Australia, temporary storage of nuclear waste was was um, done at Woomera. The fact that Woomera was a, is a commonwealth, facility or, or at least was when the, the 1998 waste dump was being proposed meant that the commonwealth could put waste there without states kind of pushing back because it's commonwealth land as opposed to state land um, but yeah I think there are a lot of people who don't necessarily like the fact understandably that, that South Australia seems to be kind of like the nuclear state every aspect of the nuclear f- fuel cycle in some capacity has been either considered for South Australia or has actually taken place there.
1: There was Jess Irwin, PhD student at ANU, who is studying South Australia's nuclear history. That's it for today. You've been listening to The Radioactive Show, produced for 3CR remotely in Te Waipunamu in Aotearoa on the lands of Naitahu Iwi, and recorded here and on Nanawal and Ngannambri lands and broadcast across these stolen lands known as Australia through the Community Radio Network. Thanks to Jess for sharing her specialist knowledge on nuclear history and taking the time to speak with me. This show and all previous podcasts can be found at 3cr.org.au forward slash radioactive. If you want to get in touch with us, please email on radioactiveshow.3cr at gmail.com. Next week is our special live show for the radio our annual push to fundraise for 3CR and keep community radio strong. Please listen in next Saturday at 10am and donate if you have the means at www.givenow.com.au forward slash CR forward slash radioactiveshow. Your support makes shows like R1 possible. Thanks for listening and here's to a nuclear-free future.